You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible as we turn our eyes to Jesus through the preaching of the word. We've turned our eyes to Jesus through song and through observance of the baptism. And today, now, we turn our eyes to Jesus through the preaching of the word. Thank you, Adam, orchestra, and our choir for faithfully stewarding uh, your responsibility week in and week out, preparing us for the worship through God's word preaching. Again, let me speak to this marriage conference, 28th and 29th. Uh, One of my buddies who I taught with a long time at at Southern Seminary, Boys College, Orrin Martin texted me out of the blue this week, and he said, Chris Sherrod, who's leading the conference with his wife, who's Thomas' sister, he said, he is the real deal. Y'all are blessed to have him. Orrin has transitioned to the church where Chris is pastoring there, and Orrin is in charge of the theology and discipleship of the church, and so uh, they, they co-labor together, and he had nothing but high remarks, and so uh, if you can be here on April 28th and 29th, it will be a real blessing. Uh, even the strongest of marriages uh, need uh, nourishment, and so wherever you are in your marriage journey, uh, this conference will be very important for you. Well, we're in... John chapter 12, but for context, let's go back to chapter 11, verse uh, 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, the most recent being the raising of Lazarus. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. These were religious people. Uh, But what they worshipped mostly was themselves. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people. He's speaking in terms of politics. Not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. Didn't even know he was that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Verse 53, this is the background for our text. From that day on, they made plans to put him, that is Jesus, to death. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded, even as we read this, that what man intends for evil, you turn on its head for good. The cross is the central example of that. We thank you for the cross. It is through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can approach you, that we would even desire to approach you, that we would even desire to, to worship you. It is through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus and through his ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have been divinely resourced to worship you. We thank you for the cross. And Father, today as we hear this text preached from John 12, uh, 
We pray that the Holy Spirit would resource us to faithfully hear the word today and respond to it in the obedience of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once told the story of this noble and, and righteous and good and wise king. And many in his kingdom were, were overcome by his, his justice and righteousness and goodness, including his own personal gardener who was over his estate. And, and so the gardener one day wanted to bless the king. He knew he really had nothing to offer the king, but he wanted to bless him. But the only thing he had to bless him with was he had grown the largest carrot he'd ever seen. And so he comes before the king and he says, Oh, Lord King, you are just, you are righteous. You are worthy of, of praise and honor and blessing. And, and I want to bless you. But all I have is this, is this carrot, the largest carrot that I've ever grown or ever seen. Well, the king looked at the, the gardener and he discerned his humility and his sincerity. And he said, I tell you what, you have been really fruitful and faithful with a small plot of land. What I'm going to do is give you a larger plot of land because of your stewardship. And he gave that land to this, this gardener. Well, there was a, a nobleman in the king's court overhearing this conversation. And he said to himself, this man received a plot of land, a large plot of land for a carrot. I breed prize-winning horses. What will he give me for my black stallion? And so he brings his black stallion before the king. And he says, king, I want to give you my prize-winning horse. And the king, discerning the man's ill motives, self-serving motives, said, thank you, received the horse, and walked away. Well, that frustrated the man, and the king knew it. And the king turned around to the man, and he said, you know the difference between you and the gardener? The gardener was giving the carrot to the king. You were giving the horse to yourself. Do you see the point? That really is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Christianity is a response to grace. We have really nothing to offer God. We have received everything. But having received everything through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we now respond in gratitude and generosity. Really, the order of the Christian life is this. Grace comes to the guilty. The guilty receives the grace. Gratitude goes up. Generosity flows out to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. There's the order. Guilt, grace... Gratitude, generosity, and then glory. That's the Christian life. Every other religion, and keep in mind, all the characters in the gospel are religious people. 
Secularism really didn't set in until the time of the Enlightenment, the 17th century. Before then, everyone was religious. And even the Romans here are religious. They're polytheistic. They believe in many gods, but they're religious. Everyone in these gospel narratives are religious people. But every religion apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ is a transactional religion. I do something for God and he in turn does something for me. Self-righteousness, divine payoff. That's every other religion in the world. I really believe I have something that God needs and he in turn has something that I want and need. Of course, when these two worldviews collide, there's going to be inevitable conflict. Self-righteousness is an enemy to grace. Self-righteous people are an enemy to objects of grace. We see both kinds of people, both kinds of religion displayed in our passage today. Now, the end of chapter 11 really should be included in chapter 12. And so if you will look with me, we saw in verse 53 that now, uh, from that day on, there are plans to put Jesus to death. Um, there's a death warrant out for Jesus. Verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Is he trying to avoid death? Well, in one sense, yes, because his time has not come. The hour has not come. It's on us, but it's not yet come. He's already told us in John chapter 10 that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The cross of Jesus will be on his terms, not the enemies of Jesus. Well, notice in verse 54, or 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now we're getting to the hour. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now this text is both ironic and haunting. Uh, the irony is seen in the fact that these are religious people. They're really caught up in the purification laws. But they were merely external uh, religious acts on their part. Uh, the reason I know that is because many of these people are either indifferent to Jesus or they're outright hostile to Jesus. Which means these were acts of self-righteousness. If they really recognized their need for a savior, if they really recognized that they were sinners, they would have fled to Jesus. They would have embraced Jesus, but they have nothing, no regard for Jesus. This is an ironic text, but it's also haunting. Why do I say that? Because notice again, the Passover was at hand. Um, this is the Passover week where for centuries, thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed to temporarily satisfy the wrath of God, to temporarily appease the wrath of God 
until the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world would come. That hour has come. It is here. But it comes in the context of great conflict. They want to kill Jesus. They want to put him to death. There's a death warrant everywhere. And one of the benefits of a perilous climate like this is that it amplifies true devotion for Christ. We see that at the beginning of chapter 12. Um, Here we see courageous expressions of devotion to Jesus. Why is it courageous? Because they are identifying with Jesus in the midst of a death warrant. So notice in verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they are looking everywhere for Jesus in that region. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Bethany would be where he would stay during Passion Week. He would would come into Jerusalem with his disciples during the day and he would go back at night uh, to Bethany. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the Passover began on Thursday evening. So six days before the Passover, it is now Saturday, Saturday night. Jesus, if he was crucified on 30 AD, in the year 30 AD, which many solid and conservative scholars believe, then this would have been April the 1st on this day. Well, notice in verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there, there in Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. Martha served. Uh, We have seen Martha in Luke 10 in an earlier stage in Jesus' ministry where she got frustrated because Mary wasn't serving like she was, and Jesus rebuked her. So here she's serving, using her spiritual gifts, but it's clear there's been some sanctification in Martha. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now, this is one of those, if I could go back in time to any time in history, it may be this party, this banquet here in Bethany that they have for Jesus. Um, Matthew tells us in his account that all the disciples were there. So you have the 12 disciples there. Of course, Mary and Martha are at this banquet, this party. But Matthew and Mark also tell us that it was in the home of Simon the leper. John doesn't tell us that, um, but Matthew and Mark do tell us this is Simon the leper's home. And then you have Lazarus, who John reminds us, as if we need reminding, uh, that he has, uh, Lazarus was the one who'd been raised from the dead. So there were at least 17 people here at this party, this banquet. And considering the fact 
that there was a groundswell of enemies who were seeking to find Jesus so that they could kill him. This was a great act of courage for them to to be associating with Jesus right here. In fact, I think that's probably part of the reason Judas uh, will betray him because the heat is now on the disciples and he wants to separate himself from that. It's certainly beyond that. We'll see that in a few minutes. But this would have taken great courage, remarkable courage. Um, Most of us have lived our entire lives and know very little what it means to courageously identify with Jesus. We think it's courageous to just go to church and tell our classmates or teammates or our coworkers that we went to church and potentially lose some street credibility with them. That's not courage. It's not courage at all. Um, but there are many people in the world today, it's courage. To identify with Jesus. In fact, in most times in history, it was courage. To be baptized would have been courageous. To be publicly baptized would have put you in the line of fire. That's the way it's been most times in history and in many places in the world today. And that would have been no exception here. These people are identifying with Jesus and everybody wants to kill him. But given what Jesus had done for these people, they likely would not have seen identifying with Jesus as courage. Uh, What may look like courage to us was clearly privilege for them. Just consider, now John doesn't tell us, but Matthew and Mark tells us that the host was Simon the leper. Now think about this. He was no longer a leper. Or he wouldn't be having Jesus in his home. Right? The lepers were required by law to quarantine. They were separated from everyone. And when someone would come close, they would have to cry out, unclean, unclean. But this leper is no longer a leper. He clearly has been healed. And there was no medicine for leprosy. The Lord Jesus Christ had clearly healed this man. So here you have a man who was formerly a leper and unclean. But healed by Jesus. And then in that same room you have a man who had been raised from the dead. After being a corpse for four days. Now, we can imagine the testimonies at that table. I would have loved to have heard those testimonies. Maybe they were, we'll have recordings of them when we get to glory. Uh, imagine Simon saying, I had these uh, discolored patches of skin and my skin was numb. I had ulcers. On the bottom, the soles of my feet. I had nodules on my skin. I had lumps all over my face. It was all gone in a moment. Even worse than that, I was separated. I was alienated from my family and my friends. I was humiliated in quarantine. 
And in one moment, I was clean and was able to be reconciled to my loved ones. And the shame was gone. And then Lazarus speaks up. That's a pretty good testimony. (laughs) And I don't mean to one-up you. But my corpse was rotting. After four days, and this man raised me from the grave, and I was reconciled to my family and friends. These two men, besides the others, wouldn't have missed that gathering for anything. For anything. They wouldn't have missed that gathering for all the money in the world unless they were somehow legitimately incapacitated like our shut-ins are. We pray for our shut-ins. We're seeking to serve our shut-ins. And they would be here if they could be. If they could physically be here, our shut-ins would be here. And we need to pray for them. We love them. They're a part of this body, but they're providentially hindered. And others, they have immune deficiency syndrome. And so it's a dangerous thing to be in a, in a crowd. But they would be here if they could. But too many believers have taken God's grace in Christ for granted. And, and they don't see corporate gathering as a privilege purchased by the Lamb of God. These two would have never missed that gathering. Also, don't miss Martha's service. Martha is serving. She's using her spiritual gift. Martha understood, even though she had been rebuked earlier because she thought her physical service was the only way to worship Jesus, and Jesus had rebuked her in Luke chapter 10 um, when Mary was sitting at his feet. Martha understood that service is worship. In fact, for the Christian, everything we do is worship. There's no divide between the secular and the sacred. Even if you're watching a movie, you're just regrouping so you get back into the battle. Everything is worship. Um, I read this week about a sign hanging in a kitchen that reads, divine service held here three times daily. I like that. Even cleaning dishes for a believer is an act of worship. I'm about to embarrass somebody, but Jerry Jackson. Jerry Jackson, who sits on the front row. I have his business card, and I love what it says on it. uh, Jerry is a master electrician, and on his business card, it reads, my work is part of my worship. That's the Christian life. Everything is worship. Martha was serving Jesus And it was an act of worship. But we also need to recognize here that her service for Jesus was no less devotional than Mary's. And Mary's was no more devotional than Martha's. Indeed, Mary's expression of worship here is glorious and beautiful. Look in verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound... Um, 
scholars tell us that's probably 11 to 12 ounces, like a Coke can. Took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. It was expensive because this nard came from northern India. It had to be imported in. And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When the world was expressing murderous rage for the Lord Jesus, Mary is filling the room with fragrance offering of worship. Expensive ointment, that's an understatement. We're gonna see later in the passage that Judas estimates that this ointment cost 300 denarii. The average worker's pay was one denarii per day. She is employing, using a year's worth of pay in the anointing of Jesus. Now, we're going to see next time she's anointing the king because he's about to come in in the triumphal entry. Um, whether she's aware of that or not, it's hard to say. But she's anointing the king. But to help us understand Jesus' perception of what she was doing. In Luke chapter uh, 7, there is another account where he's in another man's home named Simon the Pharisee. And Simon has Jesus in her home and in his home and or in his place, and it was an open area, and this prostitute who had been forgiven of her sins. Do you know there's no sin you can commit beyond the grace of God in Jesus Christ? This woman was a prostitute. So if you're sitting here today going, there's no way God could forgive me. Well, this woman was a prostitute, and she'd been forgiven. And so she comes there. She kind of busts the party wide open, and she anointed his his feet or dried his feet with, with, with her hair after his feet were wet, basically baptized by her tears. And here's what Jesus said in that account to Simon the Pharisee. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And that's the account where Jesus says, that he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now, if you've been forgiven, you've not been forgiven little. But none of us understand the depths of what we've been forgiven. He who's been forgiven little loves little. And he who's been forgiven much loves much. This woman understood how much she had been forgiven. And so clearly, Jesus sees that Mary's wiping of his feet with her hair is an act of love and gratitude and devotion. I mean, think about this. In Mary's deepest time of sorrow, Luke 11 tells us that Jesus wept with her. And then he raised her brother from the dead. Here's the question I want to ask you. How do you know when grace has captured your heart. Remember, 
We are the gardener bringing the carrot to the king, all right? We have nothing really to offer him. But how do you know when grace has captured your heart? We know it when this grace has tethered us to the grace giver in a way that makes sacrifices look like privilege. It looks like a sacrifice to us that she would use a, a year's worth of ointment on Jesus. It was no sacrifice for her. Grace had so tether, tethered her heart to the grace giver that all it was for her was a privilege. In 2009, Heather was off singing at a, at a, at a church. And at the time, we only had four children. And the oldest, Ella, at the time, was six. And the youngest, Ava, was one. Nate was four. And Seth was three. And I had them by myself on this weekend. So I decided to take them to eat. I took them out to a restaurant in Louisville. And they're moving, going crazy everywhere. And I'm lamenting my inability to parent well. Uh, I'm angry at that church for inviting Heather to sing. <laughs> and I sit down and I'm wondering how in the world are we going to get through this? All of a sudden, the male waiter came and this has never happened to me since or before. He sat down at the table. He said, let me help you order. He opened up the menu and he said, man, children love this. They hate that. <laughs> this is a good deal. That's a bad deal. He basically ordered for my children. Halfway <clears throat> through the meal, he brings out certificates for free children's meals. And then towards the end, he brings out this huge, huge uh, platter of brownies and ice cream. I looked at him and I said, I didn't order that. He said, I know, it's on the house. And he saw me confused and he said, listen, I'm a dad. I understand what you're going through. So let me ask you a question. When it came time to tilt, do you think law set in? Now I've got to tip the guy. Now I've got this obligation to tip him. No. I couldn't wait to tip him. Grace had taken over. I doubled my tip from 5 to 10%. <laughs> no. I, I doubled my tip to 40%. And then as I walked out, I beat myself over the head. Why didn't you tip him 50%? Why didn't you tip him 100%? Why? That's what grace does. That's what grace does. That brings us to another point. Mary's worshipful extravagance, and it looks like extravagance. Judas certainly sees it that way. Drives home that extravagance for the sake of Christ and his kingdom is the most 
wise use of your resources. That's the truth. And it also challenges us to consider what a healthy response to Jesus and his grace really looks like. Let me think about this. When we behold Jesus for who he is, and it's not an either or, it's more like a dimmer switch. We increasingly see Jesus for who he is. That's why corporate worship is so important. It's through corporate worship primarily that we progressively see him more and more clearly. We're like the man in Mark 8. Jesus spit on his eyes. He, he touched him. He said, can you see? He said, I see people, but they look like trees. And then he touched them again. He said, can you see? And he said, I see. I see clearly. That's sanctification. We progressively see him more and more clearly through the means of grace. But when we see Jesus for who he is, the Lord, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, who has come in the world, taken the form of a servant, and as a servant, he made himself of no reputation and humbled himself even to the point of death, the death of the cross for us and our salvation. If we truly behold him, how can we possibly not respond with awe and extravagance and generosity? Mary's response is a thermometer for us all. A thermometer helps us read our temperature, right? Her response is the thermometer to determine how healthy we are spiritually. Because when grace has come down and we've experienced that grace and beheld the grace giver, we will respond, not out of compulsion, not out of duty, out of delight, like the man who gave the king the carrot. But what a contrast with Judas. That brings us to the second point. We have seen courageous expressions of devotion to Jesus. And here we see corruption exposed by devotion to Jesus. Look with me in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him. And John writes this. John knows him well. Said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Such a striking contrast, and it's intended that way, with Mary. Uh, she gave 300 pences worth of ointment, and he's going to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's a contrast. The self righteous hate the Savior. And they hate the Savior's people because it exposes their rot. It exposes their sin. It exposes their self-righteousness. Indeed, true devotion to Jesus always express, exposes the wickedness of others who have not experienced that grace. That's why even families divide sometimes. Because someone will be saved in a family and, and it exposes the lack of repentance 
in the others. And you see that division come. Here, we see Judas is about to betray Jesus. And by the way, that is the spirit behind all persecution of Christians today. It's the spirit of Judas. And yesterday I read um, in the Open Doors USA estimates that 50, and this is 2021, the most recent data. In 2021, 5,600 Christians were murdered worldwide. 6,000 detained or imprisoned and another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. That's the spirit of Judas. It, that's why Christianity is the most persecuted religion by far in the world. It exposes humankind's wickedness like no other religion because it's a religion, the lack of a better term, of grace. Of grace. But Judas's words, I think, are also instructive to us. Um, he sounds really spiritual, doesn't he? Why couldn't we use this money for the poor? This drives home to all of us that mere social activism, even when it's beneficial to human need, can betray a spirit that knows nothing about love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And that means it really knows nothing of love for the neighbor. Because what produces true love for our neighbor? It's the love of God in Jesus Christ. Indeed, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, which was remarkable. He was obviously very capable with, with the figures, accounting. And... Clearly trustworthy. You can, you can trick people for a time. Having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Again, this goes for churches that are all about social ministry. And we should be. Tonight we're going to have a benevolence offering. Why? Because we desire to. Grace comes down and generosity goes out, Right? But social ministry without a gospel, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, is, is the spirit of Judas. Judas was a man enslaved to self-love. Later, Matthew 26, 14 says, Judas went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Now, I believe Judas was possessed by the devil. And to get to where Judas was, where he was willing to betray the only one who had, in the history of his life, loved him perfectly. It drives home the danger of self-love, and in his particular case, greed, and how it can capture a person's soul. Greed is just one symptomatic sin of a deeper sin, self-love. One of the ways we overcome greed, and I think it's, it's something that many of us struggle with, the way we mortify it is by giving generously. Giving generously to kingdom concerns. Well, notice in verse 7, we get Jesus' perspective on this. Jesus said, leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, whether Mary knew that he was about to die, I, I don't know. But she's anointing the king. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, he's certainly not discouraging ministry to the poor. We have a vital and important ministry to the poor who are equal in worth and dignity as anyone here. That's why we care for them. They're image bearers. And we have a vital ministry to the poor. And all through the gospels, we see Jesus' concern for those who were the least of these. For instance, in Matthew 25, 35, he said, I was hungry and he gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So he's not discounting that, but worship of Jesus Christ must precede that or you will do it all for the wrong reasons. In this case, it was a one of a kind occasion. He was being anointed to go as king and die for the sins of his people. He was going as the Passover lamb in six days. That brings us to the final point. We see with all of this contrasting reactions to devotion to Jesus. Devotion to Jesus has been the central theme here. But we see contrasting reactions at the very end of this passage. And I say, and the reason this is an important point is because you're going to have contrasting reactions in your own walk. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Everybody knew he'd been raised from the dead. No one was denying that. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, there's that persecution that's promised to those who are in Christ Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I want you to think about this. We never see Lazarus speaking, teaching, preaching in Scripture. We never see it. I'm sure he's not a mute, but we never see it. That's not the emphasis. There's no great acts of valor for Jesus uh, in Lazarus' life. And yet he ends up as the star witness for Jesus. Why? Not because of anything Lazarus had done for Jesus. But because of what Jesus had done for Lazarus. That spiritual life alone was a game changer for everyone around Lazarus. That being raised from the dead is a picture of spiritual regeneration. And I, and I know Lazarus was regenerated spiritually as well. Regeneration is so radical that the only way to account for it is the power of the resurrected Christ. It's a game changer to everyone around you. If you have been raised from the dead spiritually, in time, everyone will know it. And yet there were many who were hostile to Lazarus because of his new life. And this this unbelief, this persistent hostility and unbelief 
has to be an example of the kind of thing that made Jesus marvel in Mark 6. In Mark 6, on one occasion it said he marveled because of their unbelief. As I mentioned last week, and we're going to close here. This demonstrates the depths of the hardness of the human heart. Not even a man who had been raised from the dead after four days was enough to convert these people. That's why we need a savior. We need a gospel. We don't need more evidence. We have enough evidence. Indeed, who had more evidence than Judas? He had walked with Jesus for three years. He had seen all the miracles. He had heard every sermon. He had seen compassion and mercy and grace incarnate. After he betrays him, he, he, he confesses, I, I, there was nothing in this man worthy of this, worthy of being put to death. He is innocent. But as long as this world lasts, Judas will be lasting proof of the depth of the depravity of the human heart. And the seed of every sin is in every human heart. But as long as this world exists, Lazarus, yes, his physical life, his new life, but his devotion, his new devotion to Jesus, and Mary and Martha, as long as this world exists, will be lasting proof of the power of Jesus' resurrection power for those who believe. That's why this passage is so important for us. We're to ask ourselves, do I see myself more in Mary and Martha? Or do I see myself more in Judas? Mary and Martha are those who out of response of grace serve and worship. They give. Not out of impulse, not out of duty, out of delight. Giving the carrot to the king. Judas was a user. He had spent three years with Jesus because perhaps by giving him that black stallion, Jesus would do something for him and it had turned, not turned out that way. And now, those who were truly devoted to Jesus were really irking Judas. If you're self-righteous, when those around you are growing in grace, it ticks you off. It irritates you. You begin to hate them. And this is a summons for you this morning to repent. Lest we go down the path of Judas. So as Adam and our musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. We know that walking in an aisle is not meritorious. But we're going to have pastors here at the end of the aisles. And our pastors are called and trained to counsel and pray with you. And so maybe you just want us to pray for you. Uh, maybe you want to ask some questions about what it means to be a Christian. Whatever the need is. And by the way, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's this. I am a vile sinner deserving the judgment of God. I deserve judgment as much as Judas deserves judgment. And yet God in his wisdom and grace has made provision for my judgment through the substitute.
the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the judgment I deserve, and God raised him from the dead, and now I am going to publicly commit to him. I'm going to flee to him and hide myself in him. That's what it means to be a Christian. Won't you come this morning as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.